This is episode 78. In this episode of All Hazards, Scorched Earth in Big Basin Redwoods State Park. It was very emotional to see the changes and how intensely it had burned in here and the structure loss was almost complete. The CZU complex wildfire burned nearly 90,000 acres. 18,000 of those were the park, the entire park. Redwood trees as tall as 300 feet and 50 feet wide and as ancient as 2,500 years old, torched. It was the birthplace of California's conservation movement and the first state park. It was such a special place that people felt the need to lobby the government to preserve this for perpetuity and for future generations. We sit down with the person who helped lead the evacuation of the park when the flames came roaring in. Notifying all the campers, everybody who was here for day use, those same people had to go back and double and triple check every campsite to make absolutely sure we got everybody out. He's also the one who's helping lead the way to the park's recovery. Every structure in the park was destroyed, along with roads, power, and communications. There's a lot of rebuilding that needs to happen. But that rebuilding, you know, starts with thinking about what it means to have a park that's sustainable for the next 100 years. We take you to the Redwoods in an eerily silent Big Basin State Park right now. Welcome to another edition of All Hazards. We are uh, in a very special location for this episode. I am sitting on a bench that was uh, carved out of a log. In fact, uh, there are many of them around me right now. It's a beautiful sunny day, and I'm gonna introduce someone to you who can describe a little bit more in detail about exactly where we are. I'm here with Chris Borer. He is the District Superintendent, California State Parks, the Santa Cruz District. Did I get that right? That is correct, John. All right, well, great. Thanks for uh, taking the time to meet us here. Um, so describe to the folks exactly where we're sitting right at this moment. Okay. We're sitting in our amphitheater, and this would have been the place where our campers would come down and experience a campfire center and a program. Um, this was built in the 1930s, so we have a, a, a stone uh, and wooden stage, um, unfortunately, that, that burned. Right. But the remnants uh, of that are here. And then the guests would have been sitting on these same wooden log benches. And these were benches that were hewn out of fallen trees. Mm -hmm. And you could get maybe 600 people in here enjoying a, a program. Absolutely. So uh, from what I understand, uh, Big Basin Redwood State Park is the oldest? So it is the first and oldest state park. Okay. Yes, it's uh, 18,000 acres. It started out with a, uh, a smaller uh, acreage, about 3,800 acres. And um, in 1902, uh, legislation was passed to preserve this as, as a state park for the public. And since 1927, it's been known as Big Basin Redwoods State Park. Okay. When you say uh, the oldest, you're talking about in the state of California? In the state of California, that's right. And really, it's the birth place of the conservation movement uh, in California and for the, the state park system. Hmm. This would have been the genesis of that. Wow. Well, uh, before we get into the real reason why we're here, tell me a little bit about uh, how you ended up here and ah, when. Right. Well, interestingly, um, 
about 25 years ago, I was volunteering for a group that worked in state parks throughout Santa Cruz, and we were um, pulling invasive weeds to try and manage the vegetation here, and I got the opportunity to work on a prescribed fire mm. that state park staff was conducting in Big Basin. I had never experienced anything like that and didn't know that was something that they could pay you to do. <laughs> it was it was exciting. Uh, I learned a lot, and, and realizing that you could use fire to manage a landscape like this to keep it healthy was something I was, I was very drawn to. So it was soon after that that I applied for a position for state parks and have worked here ever since, um, worked in the natural resource field, and then worked my way up and uh, about five years ago became the superintendent, which is where I am today. It seems like a very special place to be. It's special enough that, you know, people gathered here uh, for centuries, um, you know, including indigenous groups and tribes that this would have been a sustaining place uh, with lots of food and uh, the, the beauty that was here and the, the microclimates. And then, you know, in the 1900s or early, earlier than that, even the late 1800s, it was such a special place that people felt the need to lobby the government to preserve this mm -hmm. for perpetuity and for future generations. And I can certainly see why. Um, even with what I'm looking at now are the burned remnants, um, what was uh, left over, I guess, from uh, the CZU fire the complex. Yeah. Wow. And so yeah, it's changed drastically from mm -hmm. what you would have experienced before the fire. Yeah. Uh, it's now mostly tones of black, gray, and brown. But very soon, um, these trees will re-sprout. And we will see a lot of greenery coming. Most of these redwoods will survive this. Some of the understory trees uh, will not. It will change the composition here, but the, the forest will survive and the ecology here evolved with fire. It's adapted for that. So tell me about the changes that you have seen here over the 25 years that you've been here. When you first came, uh, roughly 25 years ago, uh, what had been the previous fire? It had been a long time since mm -hmm. there was actual fire in this location where we're sitting. So um, I'm going to go back to maybe, it's like 1852. Wow. That's a long time, right? That's a right? long time. Yeah. There was yeah. another large fire, 1904, I want to say. It didn't get down to the historic district here where we're mm -hmm. sitting, but mm -hmm. it did burn extensively in the park. And then since the 1970s, we have had a, a, an ongoing prescribed fire program. Again, not in this historic district, but within the old growth area of the park. We've been burning plots, roughly 400 acres, um, since the 70s, we've been we've been burning that to preserve forest health. For sure. And I think there are some people who understand that concept. There are also other people who don't understand how you can sort of fight fire with fire. And, you know, I, I think the Native Americans understood that. They used to do their own prescribed burns because they understood how nature worked and its uh, self-health process. So yeah. describe to me... Uh, what you've seen within your own jurisdiction, the way that prescribed burns have helped manage the health of this forest? So, you know, in the 25 years I've been here and I've been a part of prescribed burning, we've successfully burned, um, you know, hundreds, even even thousands of acres. But this is an 18,000 acre park. Okay. We've only been able to burn a small segment of it. Prescribed burning is inherently dangerous and it's and it's difficult. It can be done safely, but it it is, uh, it takes 
a special prescription to do it safely. Mm. And so meeting all the regulations, doing it safely, uh, we necessarily are burning a small, smaller amount than we would like to. When you look at those prescribed burn plots after you've burned, you can see, even, even the untrained eye can see that there's a reduction of fuel. There are less branches, leaves, things that could burn, you know, on the ground. The response from the vegetation is positive. You get, you know, regrowth. Um, you get wider spacing in between plants. These are all things that this forest needs. And when I'm talking about the, you know, the entire park and looking at it over those 25 years, the other thing that hasn't changed are, is our infrastructure. So we have roads, we have campgrounds, we have facilities that have been here since the 1930s. Some of that's been upgraded, but for the most part, it's looked very similar to how you know, as far as the cultural landscape um, since the 1900s. When we continue, Chris will recount for us what happened the day the CZU fire forced the rapid evacuation of the park's visitors and staff. Notifying all the campers, everybody who was here for day use, those same people had to go back and double and triple check every campsite to make absolutely sure we got everybody out. When it was all over, yet still smoldering, Chris got his first look at the destruction. It was very emotional to see the changes and how intensely it had burned in here and the structure loss was almost complete. Let's get back to our conversation with Chris Sporer, sitting among the burnt evergreens in Big Basin Redwoods State Park. So this, this fire has really uh, made its mark, literally and figuratively. If you had to describe to folks who, you know, obviously can't be here right now, what would you tell them the level of significance that this fire has had on this park and the redwoods and the overall vegetation? How would you describe that to them? This is, this is historic. Yeah. Uh, nothing in our lifetimes have we, we have seen anything like this in this environment. So it is very significant. Uh, the park burned over the 18,000 acres here at the park burned over almost completely. And that's part of the 86,000 acres that burned across the Santa Cruz Mountains. Mm. Um, this, will, this will change the structure of the forest significantly. There will be a lot of tree loss, not necessarily redwood trees, but lots of the other trees, Doug firs in particular. So the structure of the forest will change. The landscape here, uh, the forest, you know, will recover. It's up to us to think how we're going to recover the cultural landscape, the facilities. And that, that will be something that will have changed forever. So when did you find out that the park was in peril? Yeah, so uh, starting with the, that lightning um, storm on Sunday, I think it was the, the 16th, um, you know, we knew that there were several ground strikes that, that led to, to small fires. Those had been burning in and around the park uh, for a couple days at a very low rate of spread and at a very low risk level. And because there were so many fires around the state from that, the resources to fight those fires were, were stretched pretty thin. But there wasn't really a threat to this park until very close to the time when the, the fire behavior changed radically. And so that would have been on Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, the, the 18th, the fire weather changed and we had drier air, we had a push of, from wind from the north, and very quickly the fires that were burning became fires that were, were burning much more rapidly. And then we got spotting, which means that fires were throwing embers out in front of the main body of the fire, causing new fires. Those were burning quickly. 
So by about six o'clock that evening on the on Tuesday, there was a recognition that that the fire spread was to the point where we had a real problem. And so by 6.30 that evening, there was a mandatory evacuation order, and we were charged with evacuating over 1,000 people. We had full campgrounds in multiple parks near here, including this, plus our residents. And at that, from that point on, it was a very serious incident. How many uh, rangers, uh, officials, did you have here working to evacuate the park? Any idea? So I believe we had seven of our rangers uh, that were called in quickly to facilitate the evacuation. We had some of our maintenance staff here as well that were assisting. Mm-hmm. Um, but those folks were charged with notifying all the campers, everybody who was here for day use. And once we got an organized evacuation happening, those same people had to go back and double and triple check every campsite to make absolutely sure we got everybody out. So between the hours of 6.30 and 8.30, we were successfully able to get everybody out safely and do about a triple check to make sure that everyone was out of the park. Amazing. Amazing. And what kind of challenges did some of the trails provide to you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we have a method where we, we can get word out quickly. I would say we were extremely fortunate that we did not have our backcountry trail camps open at that time. And those had been kept closed due to our COVID response. Of course. Yeah. So fortunately we did not have people that we knew about distant in the backcountry that we would have had to scramble to, to try and reach and get out of there. So in this case, your COVID response was a, was a positive thing. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> hard yeah, to, hard to imagine, me. huh? I think, I think about that <laughs> Yeah. because it could have been a different story. And, and just the fact of getting that many people safely out of a remote place like this on windy, you know, yeah. rural roads, it's, it's a challenge. I'm very, very proud of our staff to be able to do that. When did you get your first opportunity to come into the park and then, what did you think when you first saw yeah. the level of destruction? So I didn't come in the day after or even two days after. It was probably about four days after the fire front had gone through the park and we had done something as much as we could to, to create safe access. I came in and I knew just coming in the main entrance road on Highway 236, just seeing the intensity of the burn effects on that road, that this was a this was going to be a a completely changed landscape in here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, it was very emotional to see the changes and how intensely it had burned in here and the structure loss was almost complete. Um, it was a, it was a very, a charged day for me. Yeah. As you said, this is a, an historical section. So you've got these buildings that have been here since the 1930s and are now gone. You having spent 25 years, the majority of your professional career working in this park to now, I mean, I would venture to say that you saw this as home. Yeah. And in a way that's not like your normal home, you know, it's like the place where you feel comfortable. It just like roots you into what you're doing, why parks exist, why the public is so passionate about parks. All those things are part of my experience here at Big Basin. And then, you know, seeing our staff that literally live here, Mm -hmm until the, the fire. That's a, that's a, that's a big deal. You know, folks that work and live here have lost a lot of their personal things and their, that community is, is strong, but this is a, this is a real test. So what happens to those folks who actually lived in the park in the buildings that are no longer here? Yeah. So we're doing everything we can to support folks that, that lost their places to live. And of course they, they have their jobs We're we're having them, uh, continue to work within the district. There's plenty of work here. 
Um, we're finding temporary living quarters for them, and we're working uh, to move them into more permanent housing. In the vacancies that we have throughout the rest of the district, we will not be having anybody for the near future living within the park, unfortunately. On the way in, we saw a lot of road work, a lot of utility lines, poles. They're already working on those things to you know, rebuild the infrastructure. Where does the park begin its process of recovery? Chris will answer that question when we continue. He'll also talk about the future of the park. In fact, rebuilding is already happening. But that rebuilding, you know, starts with thinking about what it means to have a park that's sustainable for the next 100 years. Nature has its own way of recovering. It too has already begun. You know, it's evident already that, that there is rebirth and that it's not gone. They're not dead. That regrowth is already starting. It is a very hopeful thing to see. Back to our conversation with Chris Sporer, Parks District Superintendent. Where does the park begin its process of recovery? Yeah, that's a question we get asked obviously a lot since this has happened. It's something we feel every day. Um, it's going to be a long process. We're going to have to be patient. I feel like the initial response, you know, we're just finishing that and we're getting a little bit of space to think about what does it look like in the future? What does the recovery look like? There's been an amazing outpouring of support from all levels, from our supportive park participants, people who come here regularly, plus from our you know government leaders, from our partners in nonprofit form. They, there's a ton of support, and I think there's also recognition that the scale of this is such it's going to take some time and for for me what i'm looking at is we need to get through this first winter in this first year mm. the, the kind of changes that are going to happen in this forest aren't necessarily apparent to us yet when we get this you know the, the kind of storms and winds that are going to stress this forest there's going to be more tree fall there's going to be more damage and there's going to be erosion we really need to take that into account before we start any sort of process of rebuilding but that rebuilding, you know, it starts with thinking about what it means to have a park that's sustainable for the next 100 years and making sure we have the right and all the stakeholders as being as inclusive as we can be in the planning and being as thoughtful as we can to, to make sure that recreation and connection to nature and making sure that this is a place that's relevant to people as it has been for the last 100 years. I can't imagine California without this state park or, for that matter, any other state park. My wife and I came here before we were married back in the uh, early 90s, and uh, she reminded me that we had come here, and we'd been to so many state parks that I start to forget. I start to lose count. The redwoods are obviously a very prominent feature here, but they're a prominent feature in so many other parks throughout California. But she reminded me we had come here, and I said, yeah, I, I thought that sounded familiar as a destination where we had gone camping. And so when I get back, I'm going to have to pull the, the photo albums out and start looking through these pictures because I guarantee you we were sitting right here in this very same amphitheater looking at a stage that unfortunately is now gone. But as you said, recovery will happen. It may take a little bit of time, but it will happen. So, so my next question for you then is, will you, as part of the plan, be able to open the park even partially as the recovery process continues? Yeah, and that's a fair question. And I think, you know, in my initial response here, I I would think that that is the way we will conduct any sort of reopening. We will It will be a phased approach. If we can 
um, create safe access to the public for some limited amount of recreation, then that would be the, the place to start. At this point, you know, we don't have plans to do that yet, mm. but I could see that being a part of our, our planning process. Right. And I know that you are getting a lot of support online. There are links that I've seen on uh, the State Parks website that shows where people can go if they want to support the recovery process. Tell me about the support that you're getting there. Yeah, so one of the things that we benefit from, uh, and you know, part of it is being the, the first state park, part of it is just this, the magnificence of the forest. Is, but we have nonprofit partners who stand behind us all the time. And this is no different. You know, this is a significant event. Uh, Semper Virens Fund and Save the Redwoods League uh, have joined together to create a recovery fund. They're, they're, they're getting a lot of donations already um, from across the world, really, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is one of those things that, that keeps us moving forward each day, just knowing that support is there and that we'll be there as we move into the recovery process. We also have Friends of Santa Cruz State Parks, and we have the uh, Mountain Parks Foundation, two other uh, very important partners to us that are raising funds, some of those funds are specifically helping our staff in the immediate needs of where do they live, you know, how do they replace their lost items. So all that's equally important. But I think the thing that's most amazing to me is as we as park staff are dealing with the response to this incident, there are people coalescing around and figuring out ways how best to help us in the long term. Mm. And they're harnessing the support and commitment of the public who care so much about this park and all the parks, really. But that is the sort of thing that when you go to bed at night, you can think about and think, yeah, we're going to get through this. How important is that public support in the recovery of this park and other parks throughout the state? Uh, It's paramount. I mean, you know, parks only exist because people support them. And so we don't have a park system if we don't connect with people and have that relevancy and have a commitment from the public that they care enough that they want these parks to exist. So seeing that and, and knowing that the public is that invested in this and that our partners are right there to facilitate that support to us, yeah, it's critical. On a final note here, um, you were talking earlier about uh, already seeing some new growth, little sprouts coming up. That's got to be a great sign and a great feeling. Yeah, it took me by surprise yesterday. I'll tell you. You yeah. know, I was up on the upper part of the park, not down in the in the in the um, where we are today, down in the in the basin, and it burned very hot up there. And I was seeing it for the first time, and immediately noticed that yeah, a number of the trees had already green sprouts coming out. See, we talk about resilience. We talk about you know a fire landscape or a, a landscape that evolved with fire, and that's what it means. You know, these things happen. It, to us, it's extremely traumatic. The forest and the plants have adapted to that, and they have the <laughs> evident, you know, it's evident already that, that there is rebirth and that it's not gone. They're not dead. It'll, it'll look different, and it's already starting. That regrowth is already starting. It is a very hopeful thing to see. One of the other things that I've noticed right now is that it's very quiet here, in part because there really are no visitors, um, very few people, in fact, at all, uh, a few uh a few park rangers and some other folks, but it is so quiet. You can hear the wind whipping, you know, the breeze going through the trees. I don't see any birds. I saw one earlier. I haven't seen any animals. How about you? 
it is quiet. And, and I, I know that, you know, the, an event of this size and intensity is, is going to change the, the wildlife here for a while. One of the things we talked about yesterday as we were in the field looking at more and more of the landscape here and how can we start monitoring the changes is an auditory sort of transect that, that will capture over time the sounds of the forest. And you picked up on it by what you just said. It is really quiet. And what, one of the things that will cause the background noise to come up will be the resprouting of the plants and the associated insects that come back with that and the birds that come back for those insects and the mammals. It will take some time, no doubt that it will happen, but capturing that and sort of recording it, learning from it and sharing that with the public is part of something that we plan to do. What happens to the animals in a situation like this? Some of the larger mammals are uh, top predators like the mountain lion, um, many of deer, that sort of the, the, that sort of large-scale animal will have moved away from the fire as it was happening. Some may not. Birds, obviously, you know, they're moving out. They're going to have to find other habitats to survive. I'm going to say that, you know, there's going to be a loss of, of some of our small mammal population. There's obviously probably a lot of loss of insect life. Um, part of the cycle. Yeah. But part of that cycle is also recovery. And like you said, it's happening. I, I was reflecting on what you were saying about um, your memories of vacationing and, and being in so many different state parks that it was hard to tell them apart. And I was just thinking how lucky we are to have that breadth and diversity of public lands, you know, to, to recreate and make those memories. And I think that's a huge part of what's attracted me to this line of work, just being a part of that. Yeah. And then, you know, it's things like these events that really focus you in on things that are important or things that you may have taken for granted. And um, just watching the way our staff has responded to this, their own resilience and the resilience of the public uh, who have responded with support and just this sort of forward-looking, like that this, this will come back and, and we will again make memories here. And those are the sorts of things that you will, I will remember forever. Well, on that note, I'm gonna say thanks. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. It's been fun. Hey, thank you, Chris. Thanks a lot. My sincere thanks to Chris Spore, the district superintendent there at Big Basin Redwoods. He and his team and all of the park stakeholders and supporters have an immense challenge ahead of them, but they will get it done, guarantee you. If you'd like to help support the park's recovery and see some of the photos I took while we were there, go to oesnews.com, then click on podcast and look for this episode. We'll also link you to the video we shot with Chris. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to tell your friends and colleagues. We'd appreciate that. And if you already have subscribed, thank you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, all you gotta do is email me. Email me at media at caloes.ca.gov. For everyone here at the Cal OES Office of Public Information, I'm Sean Boyd. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.